Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pole Position. We are back. We are talking about Polish history. And do I have someone so, so interesting for you guys today? Listen, we're not just going to do one episode on this. We are going to be doing two. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is a two-parter and it is going to be so bloody interesting. You're going to want to stay. So hopefully you'll get that second episode as soon as but let me introduce you to my guest today. I have Joshua Zimmerman, who is an author and a historian, and he's also a professor of history at Yeshiva University. He has written books like Contested Memories, Poles and Jews during the Holocaust and its aftermath, The Polish Underground and the Jews, 1939 to 1945. But we're not going to be talking about these. He's actually going to come back and talk to us about his other books. But the new book that he's just written is so far more interesting, so far more exciting. I've been reading this book. I've been delving into this book. And I've actually, funnily enough, argued it on History Hack a couple of times, this very subject. And who are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about Yosef Piłsudski. Oh, my God. Hi, Joshua. This is amazing and so exciting. So excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This is such a great book. It is so well written. It is so easy to read. Sorry, but, you know, when you're getting into a subject like this, you want to have a book that you can actually get your teeth into and actually be able to read rather than um, some of these uh other books out there that uh, are written about Piłsudski, personally, I found them a little bit difficult, but this is not the first book on Piłsudski, first of all. So what made you write another one? So I began to be interested in this topic actually already back as an undergraduate. I was a history major at the University of California, and I pretty much soon delved into the subject of Russian history because at that university, they had a professor of Russian history named Peter Kenes, and I really enjoyed his lecture style. And it turned out that he, he also co-taught uh, a course called History of the Holocaust, which was something um, new uh, back at that time to teach a full university course, relatively new. So he did that and Russian history. And he offered this seminar for the major called Seminar in the Russian Revolution. And I came across in that course, the topic of the Polish-Soviet War of 1920. And it really kind of commanded my attention and became very interesting. And I decided to do the seminar paper on that topic. And that, you know, required me to start looking into the 
to the background of someone named Joseph Pilsudski, whom I was learning about for the first time. I had not heard about him uh, before this. And so what did I have at the time? Now, this was 1988. I'm uh, sorry, this was the spring of 1989. So what did I have at the time? I had Václav Jędrzejewicz's book, which came out in 1981. It's the only one the library had, and it was in English, called Pilsudski, A Life for Poland. So I had that. And then I started you know, reading about the 1920 Polish Soviet War. And there were other things like, like for example, Piotr Vondich, the professor at Yale, had written a book just about the Polish-Soviet War. And so I had that to go on. And then he had written also, Vondich, a book called The Lands of Partition Poland, uh, 1795 to 1918. We had that book uh, in the library. So I started reading about a little bit, you know, about Pilsudski's life before World War I. There was a little on that. And then in the biography. And then I kind of you know, delved into this 1920 Polish-Soviet war. And in that, there were controversies. Like I presented a paper that was very positive on, on Pilsudski, but the professor came back and basically said something like, wait, you know, the Russians, you know, wanted peace at that time. Pilsudski was the aggressor. He was kind of, uh, you know, acting in an imperialist fashion and was was reckless. And he 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 made me go back and, and reread different things and look at Russian statements calling for for peace with the new Poland and all this. And then I I read into that very differently because what we learned from Pilsudski, who had an extraordinary analytic abilities combined with a very not high native intellect, allowed him, and also a great judgment of character, I would like to say, it allowed him to, to understand what was behind what people were saying. So he had this knowledge that turned out to be true, that that appeals for peace by the Bolsheviks were just a temporary measure while they're preparing for a uh, subsequent military action against Poland. But but he understood that Lenin, who on the surface was advocating for the rights of nations to self-determination and the rights of Poland, he also understood that he was saying that while the Red Army and Bolshevik Russia was in the middle of the civil war, was was weakened and needed time to prepare. And then he happened to get some secret intelligence that that actually the Russians were pre- preparing for military actions against Poland. So I was trying as a, you know, as an undergraduate, not to challenge the professor, but to kind of go, well, you know, here's what here's what Pilsudski was saying, and it looks like maybe he was right. And so he kind of let me maybe come to a, 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 a conclusion somewhere in between that the Russians were offering peace and Pilsudski you know, did advocate uh, armed conflict against Russia. And uh, and I wrote this paper and he ended up uh, evaluating it in a positive way. And then I, in graduate school at UCLA, I um, also encountered him. But I should say that for listeners to know, the personal story is that between undergraduate and graduate, I took a gap year. This would be the 1990-1991 academic year. And I, and I went to Krakow and enrolled in something called the Szkoła Roczna Języka i Kultura Polskie, which is the one-year Polish language and culture program at the Jagiellonian University. And that, of course, has a big impact on a you know, 20, 20-year-old who's just graduated college and living a year in, in Krakow right after the fall of communism. And it, it was my time to be enmeshed in Polish language and culture and to and made very important contacts there. I'm still in touch with friends I made there. Uh, and that had an impact on me and how I approached graduate school. And then I, my focus on Poland continued 
And, and then the renewal of interest in Pilsudski came in some graduate seminars on late 19th century czarist Russia. And I was interested in kind of the, the national minorities in Western provinces of Russia, Poland in particular, and then learned there that Pilsudski was the leader of the separatist socialist party, the Polish Socialist Party, that demanded both the separation of Poland and social democracy, and very in a, in a very assertive way, reached out to Jews who were also social democrats to invite them to be part of the movement. But he said, you know, the the quid pro quo is you come in and support our movement, but then you have to advocate for the separation of Poland from Russia. And there he encountered Russian speaking Jews because, you know, this was czarist Russia. So they were they had been educated in Russian schools and were allied really with Russian socialists. And so he came he came up against this conflict with uh, members of Jewish socialist organizations in Lithuania whose orientation was more Russian. And so the idea of placing right up on the top of your demands the independence of Poland didn't didn't actually didn't actually work with their understanding of the the socialist movement then, which they believed, for example, that the goal should first be the overthrow of the czarist regime and the creation of a federal democratic republic of Russia, and then only afterwards should we talk about national issues like the separation of Poland. And as you know, Pilsudski was uh, was absolutely against it. So we had this kind of conflict with Jewish socialists, but he also had within his own party members who were Poles of Jewish background, who were, who were, um, who advocated Pilsudski's view, such as Felix Pearl, Stanislav Mendelssohn. We had Felix Sachs, uh, Max Horowitz. These were all Polish nationalists of Jewish background who were ardent supporters of the of Pilsudski's idea of a kind of pluralistic, uh, free Poland with equality before the law and healthy kind of labor rights, but in a separate, in a Poland separated from Russia, finally free from Russian domination. Do you know what? Let's talk about that in a bit. We're going to delve okay. a little bit deeper into that, into that whole area of, of his relationship with Polish Jews, with Russian Jews in, in all various different times. Because it's not, it's not as straightforward, is it, though, at the end? I mean, we, we do get a bit of anti-Semitism involved in there. It's, you know, you're going to get it. Yeah. But let's, yeah. Let's, start, let's start from the beginning. Go really, really, really far back. Because sure. I, in all honesty, don't get me wrong, book was great. But I, being the weirdo person I am, um, for me, I think was probably his early years were the most interesting. And we're going to talk about that now, especially because uh, he does he does end up in gulags, which we'll come to in a minute. Even though, however far excited I'm like, let's talk about it now. No, I also need to backtrack. So, Piłsudski was born in 1867 in the village of Zulu, uh, which is not far outside of Vilno, which is modern day Lithuania. People go look on a map if you don't know where it is. So, what is his family like life? Because this is, I think, the beginning of what starts to shape Piłsudski as Piłsudski, really. I, I could not agree more. I just want to say that I went from more like encounters with Pilsudski in my first kind of studies of him, which is like how he was perceived by others, what did he write and think, to an inter- a study of his internal life and ancestry and background, because that explains this kind of maverick who went against, this, against the trends of his time, a person who opposed uh, you know, dictatorship and um, anti-Semitism and was for a kind of pluralistic multicultural Poland. You know, where does all this, where does all this come from? And it really comes from his family background, exactly as you're saying, 
in in a uh, you know he grew up in this small in a village as you said outside of Vilna up until age seven when his family moved to the city of Vilna and then he lived from seven to seventeen when he graduated high school in Vilna before he went off to college in in Kharkiv uh, in in Ukraine now that family life is clearly described in both Pilsudski's recollections and the recollections of his older brother. And I think listeners should be aware, maybe they are, that Pilsudski was one of 10, and he was the fourth born and second son, but the first born son who was, was Bronisław Pilsudski. And Bronisław Pilsudski has had this enormous revival uh, in the last, let's say, decade in Poland. There's been extraordinary interest in his older Brother, because he became a well-known ethnographer and very early on in 1912 published, interestingly in English, a, an ethnographic study of, of, of a folk people and, and codified their language and is still considered a kind of pioneer. Now, why do I mention the brother? Because in the earliest biography of Pilsudski, which was published in 1915 by someone named Václav Sherashuk, Cherashevsky, he was uh, a member of Pilsudski's uh, brigade, first brigade in the legions. He wrote this biography in which he interviewed Pilsudski's brother. It's very, extremely valuable because he has several long excerpts from interviews he did with the older brother, who then tragically passes away in 1918 in Paris. And, and so we don't, you know, we don't, he, he never had time to write a memoir. But these are recollections in which that author went back and said, what was your home-like life? So we have these recollections from Bronisław Pilsudski and from Pilsudski himself. And then, of course, other biographers kind of go in and they look at the mother and father. And what, what we know, you know is, is the following, is that his parents, Maria and Józef Vincente Pilsudski, and I, I do include a, a pretty thorough family tree at the end of the book. They were married in 1863, about two months after the famous 1863 Polish uprising began, and that his father was actually part of the uprising and insurrection. Now that insurrection will last more than a year, uh, but it will fail. And, and Pilsudski's parents were forced to flee from what the region in Lithuania, and, and then 200 miles eastward, they went to one of Pilsudski's mother's estates, in, and that was Zuwów in 1864. Then they proceeded uh, to have children and raise their children, and Pilsudski was born in 1867. And the recollections about home life is that it was a very ideal home life in the countryside, beauty all around them, with plenty of domestic servants who helped take care of the children and help educate them. But I want, I would like to just read some excerpts um, of how Pilsudski described his home life and also brought us up. But I do want to just uh, say to readers so we understand the scale of tragedy, which is it that it defined a whole generation of Poles, which is that they declared in 1863 secession from Russia and they mounted a full insurrection. We believe that about 115,000 Russian troops were dispatched uh, to the Western Rim where it was taking place. And something like 16 months later, that insurrection was, you know, collapsed, but it was a national catastrophe. So just to give readers an, uh, an example of the, of the immediate aftermath, we think that about 10,000 Polish 
insurrectionists or insurgents fell in battle. 669 insurrectionary leaders were summarily executed and about 26,500 Poles were sent in chains to Siberia. Now, in Lithuania- Gosh, just one second, yeah, 26,000. Yeah. 26,500 Poles were then sent in chains to Siberia because- Okay, we, I just want to add something here because yeah, yeah. most of our listeners, if we talk about gulags and we talk about going being sent to Siberia and everything else, people think World War II. People, right. this was happening in Russia way before that. And I've got a lot of friends who actually now they work on uh, Polish memory and, for example, Polish experiences pre-World War II. So there were so many of these Poles in Siberia at this time period. It's just incredible. It it is extraordinary. There's even a relatively new book just about this, the 19th century uh, Siberian camps and places where these were they to which these exiles. It wasn't only Poles, but but especially in 1863, a lot of them were. But it is really something, and I was just going to mention that in Lithuania, where Pilsudski's family lived, we think that 200 battles took place, followed by the confiscation of 1,800 Polish estates. So one of the the kind of punishments exacted on the Poles was the confiscation by Russia of estates and property. And so Pilsudski's family had to flee their one estate for another because Pilsudski's father was being pursued as an insurrectionist. But they were they were able to flee far enough away that they weren't really um, identified or di- or discovered. But if we think just about in terms of what happened to the family, I only just want to mention that many of Pilsudski's parents' first cousins, his grandmother, were either sent into exile or arrested. He had two sorry, there were two um, first cousins who actually this we call first cousins once removed because they were they were his parents' first cousins were sent into exile and never returned and, and passed away at age 29 and 31. His grandmother was arrested for some time, uh, indicted with the charge of conspiracy to hide ammunitions, weapons for the insurgents and to hide uh, insurgents. So you can see that this impacted his family very, very directly. And, and that's why when we look at kind of the descriptions, we can see and I'll just give you an example of, of one. So one of them uh, is on page 26 of the, of the book in which uh, there's a discussion of how this impacted. And essentially what uh, Bronisław Piłsudski says is that the, uh, essentially that idyllic um, childhood with the exception of what he called this dark shadow hanging over the family, which was the defeat of 1863. Because, because um, both of them, comment on how even when they were small children, there were still some fugitives of the law being harbored in their home. So that's one thing, meaning fugitives, they were in, they had participated in the uprising, but they hadn't been caught, but they were hiding in the Pilsudski home. And so there's a, there's a discussion of what that meant. But otherwise, we can just say it really just infused the home with this idea of patriotism and hopes and dreams for the restoration of a free and sovereign Poland. And um, I wanted just to share with with listeners that in Pilsudski's recollections, in his brother's recollections, they both speak about what they call clandestine nighttime readings. And that is that their mother would take illegal books, which were basically Polish 
19th century bards, the great uh, 19th century poets, and she would take them out of some hiding place and read verses from this poetry to them out loud while they, you know, as a bedtime ritual, and then force them to, to remember, you know, to kind of learn by memory, some of these. And I, you know, and if you just listen to some of these, so for example, one is Adam Mitzgevich's very famous book written in 1832, called The Books of the Polish Nation and Pilgrims. It's kind of like a narrative, a, a narrative reconstruction of the, of the beginnings of Poland and then its collapse after the partitions. It's kind of biblical in form. But one of the things that both brothers said is that their mother would read an, uh, one of the verses called the Pilgrim's Litany, which was the last poem in the book. And I want to just share you this one excerpt from that Mitzgevich poem. From the slaver of Moscow, of Austria, and of Prussia, deliver us, O Lord, we read in the Pilgrim's Litany. And then it continues, for a, for a universal war, for the freedom of the, of the people, we beseech you, O Lord, for the arms and the eagles of our nation, we beseech you, O Lord, for the burial of our bones in our own land, we beseech you, O Lord, for the independence, unity, and freedom of our fatherland, we beseech you, O Lord. This is kind of gives you a sense of what they were being, you know, what was being read to them. And what they're being asked to memorize. And both of them speak about this, uh, you know, in very, you know, kind of specific ways. So I just want to read you Bronislav, his older brother's recollection. By the way, he was, his older brother was only one year older. So he says, I'm quoting from Bronislav, the national idea based on the works of our great poets was for us a type of Bible. Our mother read them to us out loud in the evenings during secret gatherings. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. Uh, I'm sorry, that's what uh, Bronislaw Pilsudski said. And then Pilsudski himself writes very similarly, saying essentially the same, that she instilled him in him and, uh, and his siblings this profound sense that Poland had been wronged by history and that the mission of the Poles was to right that wrong by struggling, you know, to restore sovereignty uh, to Poland. And she said that that's part of what it means to, to be a, a, a Pole, which was to invest, you know, your, your life in the struggle to, to, to realize that end. So that, that's how Pilsudski comes from that home and says he was instilled with patriotic fervor. I just want to give our listeners just a little bit of tiny, tiny touch of a bit of a background because yeah. um, what, what we don't, oh, I don't know if our listeners know this, but Poland underwent a partition, obviously, by uh, Russia, Germany and Austria and Hungary. And in that they were under the Russian occupation in Warsaw, they were kind of given this freedom of this kingdom. 
And it wasn't really freedom. We all know this. It was still under Russian control, um, but it kind of looked looked like freedom. And then this um, this uprising actually caused some serious consequences where you're discussing now about Piłsudski having to learn all of this in secret and everything was hidden. That's because after this uprising, everything was taken away. I mean, you could speak Polish. Schools were taken away. You had to speak Russian. Uh, libraries were taken away. Books were taken away. I th- think they were burnt, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, and you know, by the way, they they passed a decree saying that it's uh, punishable by law to have a map in your possession that has the word Poland anywhere on it uh, in what in the area that was Poland. So it's Russia, and you're just not allowed to you know to draw Poland on the map or to inscribe that. I mean, this is this is what he's going and experiencing under what well, it was Russian mm-hmm. occupation. I'm going to talk about Austria late, a little bit later because it's not quite the same in in, uh, in Austria-Hungary, uh, not as uh, strict. But before right. we do, because we got what we got a while before we get to that point. But yeah. <laughs> but he's um he's obviously clearly inspired by his mother. He's got a very deep rooted, very deep rooted hatred for Russia. And I'm assuming this is how he got involved in all of the various clandestine groups. You're absolutely right. I do want to qualify this notion that he was anti-Russian or hated Russia. What I discovered is that quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details Pilsudski despised despotism and czarist autocracy and what he what he wanted to find was what he called a second russia which is a democratic russia and because he couldn't find that he would stand against a an autocratic russia so even after the collapse of the Russian um, empire in 1917, when there's a brief period of democratic rule in 1917, then the Bolsheviks take power. So going, you know, a a few years forward, when in 1920, he's kind of battling Bolshevik Russia, he's accused of having this fervent anti-Russian sentiment. And what at that time he said is, is that he's against Bolshevik Russia, and he's against imperial czarist Russia, but what he's for is what he called the third Russia at that time, which is a democratic. But he said, I've looked and I'm searching. It is nowhere to be found. He's only seeing two extremes. And so in my view, if Russia became democratic in 19, 
of 18. Let's say that the provisional government, which is for listeners after the fall of the Tsar in February 1917, an actual Western-oriented uh, or, uh, democratic government arose in Russia called the provisional government. And they, they really were um, democratic, but it only lasted for eight months. But if that had survived and there was a constitutional democratic uh, Russia, Pilsudski would have greeted that country warmly. One also that, that, didn't, um, that, that didn't oppose Polish independence. So it's not Russia in and, of, in and of itself. But clearly in this period we're talking about, the 19th century, the hatred against Russia is, is very profound. Like, I, you know, when, when you have, you know, uh, 10,000 Poles perishing and arising, 26,000 being, um, being placed in exile, summary executions. I forgot how many thousand then went into exile you know, living in essentially France and Switzerland. And there were, there were massive Russian crimes against, against uh, Poland. So, but sorry, going back to your question, was it about how he enters conspiracy? So perhaps um, listeners would, you know, you just would kind of need to know this is that he graduates from a Russian state gymnasium in Vilna in, in 1885. At the time, he's 17. And then he enters the University of Kharkov, today Kharkiv, Ukraine, as a student of medicine in the 1885-1886 academic year. And there he gets involved in secret student organizations and starts reading socialist literature. He has already defined himself as a social democrat or a socialist and for the first time, he reads Marx and Russian translation, but he's not particularly interested. But there are a lot of things that happen in, in that academic year, for example. In, to give listeners one example, in the spring of 1886, uh, the Russian government was able to infiltrate a Polish socialist organization in Warsaw, and they put them on trial and executed four Poles who were self-identified socialists and were in an illegal socialist party. And um, that was 1886. And it was the first, they say, like public hanging of Poles since 1863. It was done in Paviak prison at this place. And, you know, so Pilsudski's, his rage about Russian treatment of Poles is kind of increasing. And then what happens is that um, he gets blocked from entering the second year of university. Why does he get blocked? Because on two occasions, he, he was discovered as being a member of illegal student organizations because you, you weren't allowed to have a, an organization that wasn't approved by the university. And his was like a, a reading group. So he had on his record two cases in which he had been temporarily removed from university and, uh, and, and kind of given, you know, censured, I guess you can say. So when he applied for a second year, he was denied admission. This was a huge thing for, for the young Pilsudski, 18 years old, going on 19, and he's blocked from his second year of university. He doesn't know his future, and he goes back home to Vilna in the summer of 1886, and that's when he starts you know, uh, taking part in more of these illegal socialist study groups, and then it just turns out that because of association with his older brother, who was at a, a student in St. Petersburg, and who happened to be mingling with members of a Russian terrorist organization who were planning the assassination of Tsar Alexander III. Because of that, because of that association, unfortunately, in which one of those Russian terrorists visited Pilsudski's older brother in Vilna, and because Pilsudski was in the home when that visit took place, 
when the plot was uncovered, Pilsudski's older brother was arrested. And just because of sheer association with the brother and this Russian terrorist, Pilsudski was arrested. That's when he gets sentenced to five years Siberian exile. That's 1887 to 1892. And that year of exile, I think is the five years of exile is pretty critical. If you think of of just, you know, our development as, as young adults from 19 to 24, he was in Siberian exile, blocked from studying university, but he met very important people. For example, he met his first love, uh, who was Leonardo Lewandowska. So he had a, a kind of love affair. And we know this because after approximately nine months of meeting her, her period of exile, she was a Polish political ended and she was forced to go back to um, the Polish, the area where she lived. And we have the next like two years of letters between them have been preserved and published. So that's a rich source for what, you know, was kind of tap into Pilsudski's mindset at age, you know, 20, 21, where he's not only just speaking in tender, you know, language towards his girlfriend, but also talking about his thoughts about when he returns and so forth. So when he returns, by the way, at age 24 in 1892, he returns to Vilna and the Russians slap him with what I call one of the most cruelest uh, decrees uh, on an exile, which is, which is you're free to go now, but when you return to your home, we were giving you an additional five years where you're where you're banned from studying at any university. I just want to cut you off here, raised because, yeah. but because, why because? Because uh, the story of Lewandowska doesn't end well at all. And, oh, I know. It's and it's sad. so sad. The story of Lewandowska is just, it's just so sad to what happens to their relationship in the end. Yeah. And so you see they were deeply in love. And then nine months later, she had to return home. And in a way, it's almost like, you know, a college uh, love affair story where the couple, you know, parts during the summer and they have, you know, they write letters between each other. And then, you know, imagine if then one of them says, well, I can't return this year. I'm going to be taking a year off. And now they have a full year of correspondence, but they can't see each other. Well, that's what's happening. There's letter after letter. She preserved all the letters that she got from Pilsudski. But after about a year and a half, first of all, she returned to an area of what is today Ukraine. And he kept in the letters, you know, pleading with her, will you consider settling permanently in Vilna so that when I come back, you know, and, and he gives the names of his family, please go and my brother will, you know, one of his brothers or his, you know, family members will will help situate you in Vilna so that when I come back, we can be together. But that never really happens. She remains in her place of origin in an area of, 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 of Ukraine. And then when she when he gets back to Vilna in 1892, you know, they're not together and he eventually meets someone else. And that's when he starts, you know, saying that unfortunately, you know, that he's gonna he's breaking up with her. And it she doesn't take it well. But there's not a whole lot known about it other than she was she was unstable, maybe emotionally psychological. And all we know is that she apparently committed suicide in 1899, which happens to be the year that Pisutsi got married for the first time. We're not sure if there's a connection. Love. Very yeah. complicated. Yeah. The other, the other thing I just want to throw in actually before we move on to after his exile. 
is that he he doesn't just obviously meet his first love interest. He meets also so many interesting people that really do influence his thoughts, his views, Absolutely. his politics. But most of all, the one thing I do find incredibly interesting is that he meets people that took part in the uprising who are right. still there. Yeah, is that not Right. Is that not incredible? And if, if, if the, the listeners can think about this, that he's now a college age young man, and he now has almost like the equivalent of a kind of, you know, university in exile where he finds mentors. And one of them is extraordinary, Bronislav Schwarze. He was at that time, 30, about 37 years older than Pilsudski. He had actually been one of, he was he was apprehended by the Russian government right at the beginning of the uprising. He was part of the actual Polish national government in Warsaw that declared an insurrection. And uh, he was sent to Siberia. He had been there for over 30 years. And there there's this, this 19-year-old, 20-year-old Pilsudski who, who finds his way to this, this senior you know, uh, insurrectionist who's now in his, I believe at that point, late 50s. I'm not don't remember exactly the age, but you know, 30 plus years older than Pilsudski. And Pilsudski is absolutely enamored with this subject of the 1863 uprising. And he, and he actually has an insurgent who's been in exile for over 30 years that he can talk to about. So he, he spent days and days engaging this senior uh, insurgent member of the in, in, insurrection in conversation about what took place, what are his feelings. And he actually he must have taken notes because listeners should know that perhaps Pilsudski, when he began to lecture on historical topics, and this happened later around 1905 through 1914 when he lived in Krakow, he lectured more on the 1863 rising than any other topic. And he ended up writing, or actually his lectures ended up getting um, published and then pulled together as as whole books because he believed that the key to the future of Poland was in a kind of meticulous study of the 1863 rising and to try to understand how and why it failed and not to make the same mistakes in the future. He was by nature a pragmatist. So even though he was a patriot and we think of as a romantic nationalist, he also understood that if you want to achieve the goal of the separation of Poland from Russia and its independence, then certain things have to happen in order that to take place. And he will eventually come to the conclusion that and that a popular rising will not achieve that goal. And we can get there later. And that's after years of study of the uprising. He, he read meticulously histories that informed him about how to, to proceed now and in the future. He was fascinated with Napoleon, and he studied in detail these wars. But I did a lot um, trying to identify the books that he read when he finally is able to escape from Russia in, in 1901 and settles in Austria-Hungary. He has We have this 12-year period between the ages of essentially 32 and, and, and uh, 30, sorry, 34 and 46, Whereas in Krakow, he's leading these organizations, but he's doing a ton of reading. And so when you look at that reading, it makes a lot of sense. He's reading about past and wars in the recent past, wars in the distance past, and he's focusing on military history and how we understand why one armed force is victorious over another, because he's dreaming of leading a Polish armed force and he wants to be victorious. And so his study of 1863 
uh, is really uh, not a romantic reading of it. It's let's acknowledge what was great and how much Pole sacrificed, but also why it failed. And let's not, we don't want to advocate the same thing again. We don't want a full uprising that ends up in kind of genocidal massacre of the Poles by the Russians. That's just, that's not really in our interest any longer. As much as you admire the insurrectionist who gave his life for Poland, that's not what we want. So we've just spoken about him coming home after five years of being exiled. He's a young, impressionable man, uh, meeting people from the 1863 uprising, being schooled by his mother, who was incredibly influential in his life. He comes back. And my biggest question is, does he actually resume his Klansdai activities? So at the very beginning of his return, he's considering different options. And one of them, remember, he was gone for five years. So one of the you know surprises when he gets home, because he he wasn't allowed to correspond, is that his older sister, Zofia, who's his favorite sister, now is married with three children. So just imagine this. He, le- he comes back five years later and he meets three, two nephews and one niece for the first time and a brother-in-law for the first time. The brother-in-law is 21 years uh, older than his sister and has happened to, happens to be an attorney and and offers Pilsudski a job and in the in the law office and essentially to encourage him to get into some work, maybe become a lawyer, uh, maybe go back to school and study. So he's considering this, but then within about a month is when he gets asked to participate in a, a kind of socialist reading group. And that's and at that point, that was what we what I would call the point of no return, because that's when people inform him that something called the Polish Socialist Party had formed an exile in Paris and that they had issued a founding program. And it's my belief that when he read that program, it spoke to him so deeply because this was basically 18 Poles from the Russian Empire who were in exile in Paris in November 1892. They drew up a program. And what was that program? We demand the independence of Poland and a social democracy based on the following principles. And those principles were all the basic freedoms we think of, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, and also healthy labor laws like an eight-hour workday. And it called for equal pay for equal work for, for women, the right to form unions. And it really spoke to him, which is essentially a country that would be national in form, but, but social democratic in, in, you know, in content. And that's exactly what he was. He, he, he seemed to just dive right into that idea. And he agreed to become basically the leader of the Lithuanian chapter of that party. That's in 1892, 1893. And from that point on, he is, he becomes the leader of that party in the Russian sector. And essentially social democracy becomes this kind of tool uh, to mobilize the masses for independence. But he is now uh, in hot pursuit by the Russian police to find the leader of this party. And he's not captured until the year 1900. But we should also say that two years later, after his return from Vilna, he does found the party's first newspaper called Robotnik. It's published in 1894. And that's an entire kind of amazing story of how they were able to to kind of smuggle in from abroad a kind of printing press to find a place in Russia where they could operate a printing press without having people inform on them and start putting out monthly issues 
of a paper for which if you just merely possess it, you would be arrested immediately because it was a paper that was calling for the both the overthrow of the czar and the independence of Poland, right? So, and he was the editor in chief of that paper. And by the way, he was able to put that out monthly for six straight years until he and his then wife would be discovered and arrested in the year 1900. But that gives you a sense of, you know, how just kind of extraordinary it was that he was able to pull that off. Because that's like 30, I forgot how many, but it's like 38 or or 40 something issues of this very subversive paper in Tsarist Russia that was very dangerous to possess. But But for them, the achievement that it was printed in Russia, not smuggled in. I think we're going to leave it at this point because we have so many more things to talk about and we're going to put this into a two-parter. And do you know what? I have a really dark feeling that we might end up even turning this into a three-parter because at the moment we're only coming up to the 1900s. We still have 1904, 1905. We still have the rest of the the, the, the period before the second, the First World War and the Second World War. Then we have the first, my gosh, we have a lot to talk about in Pilsudski. Uh-huh. So I'm going to leave it at this okay. point with Pilsudski's now been arrested, 1900s. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. So thank you, Joshua. We will be back with you in a few moments. Thank you so much for having me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 